quote, Evil is the point of view. We are immortal. And what we have before us are the rich feasts that conscience cannot appreciate and mortal men cannot know without regret. God kills, and so shall we, indiscriminately. He takes the richest and the poorest, and so shall we. For no creatures under God are as we are, none so like him as ourselves. Dark angels not confined to the stinking limits of hell, but wandering his earth and all its kingdoms. End quote. Anne Rice, Interview with the Vampire. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. the recording we did at Cape May Brewing Company on Mischief Night did not work out. I know. It's a bummer. I, we just had technical difficulties because, I mean, that's the perils of live recording. It mm-hmm. happens sometimes. So we're re-recording this one for all of your listening pleasure in our studio setting. So it'll sound much better anyway. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so if you were in the audience on Mischief Night and you notice a few little differences, that's simply because some things work in a live setting and they don't really work when you're not in front of people. Yeah. Um, and some things don't work at all. <laughs> and you find that out quickly when you're in front of a live audience. <laughs> For sure. So we're just going to use it and yes. move forward. <laughs> There's also a fresh monologue for you guys in there. God, man, alive. This October just flew by. And I was so, like, stressed and busy the whole time. Yeah. yeah right? Same. It just felt like never-ending stuff. I know. I need to do fall better next year. So much better. So much better. It left me sick. I mean. That's right. You're not even. Well, I mean, no. like, I also, after our show, I was like, I did Halloween. We got the interview out with um, with Tony Moran, which I hope you guys enjoyed. I really hope you liked the interview with Tony. He was great. And yeah. what, a, what a fun, awesome opportunity. That came to us via one of our fiends. I know. I'm so sad I had to miss it. I, know. I had a chemistry test, but <laughs> we but, uh, did yeah. miss you. But anyway, next year I'll do better. I'm going to start fall in the summer next year. That's a great idea. I think I have to do it. That's what marketers do. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like in August actually is when they start um, promoting for like Black Friday and Christmas. And oh, January is when they start promoting for prom season. Because that's like April. So that's oh when God. girls are usually looking for their dresses. Oh, my God. I got to be So we got to be better. I know. That's hard. It is. Well, anyway. <laughs> today it, we're gonna it requires talk- a plan. <laughs> it, I hate that. Um, so today we're going to talk about vampires, though. Yes. We're going to stay in spooky season for just a minute longer. But not just any vampires. No. The most famous vampire of all time. <gasps> Count Dracula. Oh, that's a very good Dracula. He sounds exactly like that. (laughs) 
But as you know, we here at We Would Be Dead like to keep things personal and realistic. So we'll just be calling him Dracula. Okay. You know, like his first relatable, yeah. his relatable first name. Drac. Just Drac. <laughs> hanging out. Yeah. What's up, Drac? <laughs> he doesn't have a first name in the novel. And if we just call him the Count, I'm going to be imagining the Count from Sesame Street the whole time. Yes. Count von Count. Yes. Who actually does. Ah, ah, ah. Yeah. So... <laughs> That's going to ruin the whole vibe, though, so we're not going to do that. <laughs> no, we want you to think of the image of Dracula that's a little more, like, seductive and classy. So I'm going to give you guys a minute to cleanse your minds of, like, Hotel Transylvania Dracula mm-hmm. and the version of Gary Oldman Dracula with the two buns and the weird old face. Mm-hmm. None of that. Oh, and the hilarious—I don't—I hope you've seen them, but I don't know if you have. The hilarious pictures of Nicolas Cage as Dracula yes. in yes. an movie. So good. So, so good. I ran across them so many times researching this. I kept being like pictures of Dracula to use as like visual aids. And it was just all Nicolas Cage in this ridiculous mm-hmm. outfit. Perfect. So yeah. Wasn't um, he also, isn't he the one that was in Vampire's Kiss too? This isn't like his first time being a vampire. I don't know, but it can't be his first time being a vampire. No. Think about who he is. I think he's a vampire anyway. I think maybe in life he just is. Yeah. And so he he's gets like, tapped. just playing myself. Yeah. All right. Another vampire movie. I got it, you guys. He does have a large obelisk shaped tomb in the cemetery in New Orleans. Oh, that's right. He's... Is he? Oh, he's in Renfield. That's the yeah. new one, right? I, yeah, I, it's only pictures of him like on set, but it's they're very funny. And I, yeah. the internet wanted me to see them so bad every time I typed in Dracula, so I did a lot of times. And I was right; he was in Vampire's Kiss. There you go. So you guys, let him Google those photos. I'll probably provide one for you in the photo suite anyway because they're really fun. Um, but you won't be disappointed. No, right now what we're going to go for is classic Dracula. So I want you to think of like Bela Lugosi in his prime or that newish Netflix show where he's super hot. Mm. Yeah, that's the vibe we're going for today. Um, Even though classically in the book, he's a fucking goblin, but we'll circle back to that. Nobody likes it, but we'll just talk about it for a second because we have to. (laughs) But in the ethereal presence of sexy vampire talk, I'd really like to feel like a sexy vampire myself. Yes, please. Everybody's a sexy vampire. That is always the vibe. Yeah, I agreed. It should be at least. Mm-hmm. People don't listen. But it ain't easy to be a sexy vampire when you're hunched over a computer for hours and hours at a time. True. Not part of the vibe. No. No, in researching this parasitic playboy, we have been left kind of pale and listless like the walking dead. Mm. And while we looked amazing in our live show, in our What We Do in the Shadows costumes, which almost nobody got. Yes. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> But like, listen, you guys, they were so good. They were so good. Our costumes were perfect. <laughs> Will knew who I was right away. <laughs> we'll put in a picture. Some of you are going to get it and you'll be like, oh, they are perfect. Yeah. And we're going to reuse them another time because too much went into that <laughs> to not. So anyway, perfect as they may be, we can't wear them all the time. Yeah. I guess we could, but like people would look at us funny. Um, And while I'm just like a boring crime mom hanging out in my house, Leslie is leaving for Paris in three days. Yes. So, you guys, I need help. We have to help her out. I thought maybe we could go the vampire route because they always look great, Mm -hmm. you know, and just like drink some blood real quick. Yes, please. But you know what? As it turns out, that's really gross. Oh. And nobody wants to just give up their blood. You know, there are some people. (laughs) I mean, not that I was able to contact this week in the fake thing that I did for the sake of this moment. Maybe I'll find something in Paris. (laughs) Maybe you will crawl around in the catacombs a little. 
don't tell John that. He is terrified. He's like, none of you girls can leave each other in the catacombs. People go missing and they die. And I'm like, okay. okay. There were two it's bodies. A Fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, no, I guess there were like, uh, there was a video. He mm-hmm. sent me two videos. One where they found a body of a girl that just went off on her own and got lost and then died. And then another video of somebody else. And you could see the video of them like, kind of they're they're somewhat lost they're by themselves and then they drop their phone and they're screaming through it and john knowing that you're gonna go there sent you those videos (laughs) as a cautionary tale great yeah (laughs) (laughs) well anyway being as nobody i know wants to give give up their blood we thought we could just acquire something a little less invasive that always works a silver chalice of... Oh, no, I have to sing this week. Sing it low. <clears throat> Validation, <laughs> a hill worth dying on. Sultry this is that week. Good? Yeah, it's very good. <laughs> Leslie has a sinus infection, so enjoy another key of validation this week. Yes. Ah, ah, ah. One, two, three. Chocolate cookies. Perfect. Your Count Von Count's understudy. I've appointed. Go to Sesame Place. You're hired. Great. Actually, don't go there. You'll you'll get like a norovirus. Oh, no. Anyway. But we're in luck because our fiends can provide us with that very thing without any bleeding required. Wonderful. And how? But how, you must be asking yourself. I am. I know. Well, I'll tell you. Head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. Mm-hmm. Ratings and reviews equal attention, attention equals support, and support equals more and better content for all of you. Mm-hmm. That's what we want, right? Yes. More, more, more. But if you just can't wait for more, we would be dead in your life. Well, then lucky you, you don't have to. <gasps> yeah, great, right? Yeah. You can support us over on Patreon. <laughs> That was really good. It's just my voice this week. I just, I really like it. I can't help it. There for just a few dollars a month, you will gain access to our entire catalog of 30-minute horror movies, special mini-sodes, our weekly um, after-show host mortem, which is available in both video and audio formats. Maybe you want to see our faces. Maybe you don't. Both are okay. You'll also get a special gift, gift in the mail from us, giveaways, merch deals, opportunities to Zoom with us and other cool patrons, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all of that is a little too much for you, you can simply follow us on social media. We are at Would Be Dead Pod anywhere and everywhere you get your content. You can like our posts, share our posts, like and share our posts. If you're feeling saucy, you can leave us a comment, post about your favorite episode, let us know when you're listening, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell that guy who works at the local Starbucks who you just know like self-identifies as a vampire. You know, he wears all those silver rings and he calls you darling for no reason. Todd. That was quick. You knew it. You're like, that guy's name is Todd. I know Todd. it is. Yeah. All right. But he has like a secret name that I'll tell you later. And that's just like what it has to be <laughs> yep. on his. Yeah. It's only Todd's my mortal name. Yeah. <laughs> he gets so mad at Starbucks for not letting him use his other name. It doesn't fit on a name tag. It's yeah. that long. Yeah. And at home, he's like, God, mom, stop calling me Todd. Yeah. <laughs> you know I'm Lord of the Darkness. Yeah. Something like that for sure. Well, then your friends and. Uh, the Lord of the Darkness, can become fiends and we can all hang out together. Great. I bet he's great at parties. Yes. But I think that's all that I have for now. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? Well, Holly, after a long week, 
I could not think of anything to you add. You know what? I can't think of anything either right now. So yeah. my brain is still <laughs> scrambled from October. Well, all right then. On with the show. Quote, do you not think that there are things which you cannot understand and yet which are? That some people see things that others cannot? But there are things old and new which must not be contemplated by men's eyes because they know or think they know some things which other men have told them. Ah, it is the fault of our science that it wants to explain all. And if not explain, then it says there is nothing to explain. End quote. And that's Bram Stoker. There is much about the myth of the vampire uh, that science will never understand. They crawl from their graves, blood running from their mouths, trailing mist in search of innocent victims to join them in their monstrosity. They're alluring in their terror and terrifying in their allure. And humankind will never cease to wonder if they are simply a legend or if there is much, much more to tell. Ooh. I know, maybe there's more. Dracula started his life in a novel bearing the same name by Bram Stoker. The novel was published in 1897 and was reviewed pretty favorably, though it didn't become a screaming success until long after its author had passed. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with the original plot, which I assume there will be a fair amount of you guys because there's been so many iterations of Dracula, it's hard to know what, like, the backbone of the story is. Yeah. Sometimes I'm going to give you a fun synopsis and I'll go pretty quickly so as mm-hmm. not to take up everybody's time. But, or um, we can just send everyone a copy of the book and then let them read it. Read and the then, whole novel. And then when novel. they're ready, they can come back and listen to the rest of the story. <laughs> For those of you who don't want to read all of Dracula, okay. I'm going to do it in, like, four or five pages. <laughs> it's free on Kindle. There you go. So if you want to know all of it, you can. But today, this is what I'm going to tell you. Okay, ready? Here we go. So we first meet Jonathan Harker, a newly qualified English solicitor, while he's visiting his weird new client, Count Dracula, at his castle in the Carpathian Mountains. So Jonathan Harker is basically a realtor. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, cool. I'm going to talk to this weird, mysterious count in a mountain. Cool. Dracula wants a second home in London. And don't we all? Yeah. Yeah. Jonathan Harker describes Dracula as, quote, Thin, with a long white mustache set under an aquiline nose, pointed ears, and sharp teeth. He is dressed all in black and has hair on his palms. Gross. Jonathan Harker described him as, quote, an old man, cruel-looking and giving an, ex- an effect of extraordinary pallor. And in his journal, later in the book, he says, quote, I saw Dracula with red light of triumph in his eyes and with a smile that Judas in hell might be proud of. Ooh. Isn't that a good line? It is. It's yeah. not in the same description, but I had to add it because it was just too good. Yeah. Also, um, they say he has hair on his palms, which is like a long-held myth about masturbation. Said they used to say that like if you touch yourself, it'll give you hairy palms. Oh, so I funny. wonder if that's a thing. I didn't when I first researched that. I didn't look it up, but I wonder because Dracula is so heavily connected to sex. Yeah. That I wonder if that was like a, a, like part of that. That would make sense because he is the devil, right? Like, mm-hmm. That's the origin of his name. So, like, clearly so, he jerks off all the time. And that's where, that's who would give you those palms. That's who'd those, be like, let's touch private parts. Yeah. <laughs> the more you masturbate, the closer you are to the devil. And, and then the your closer. palms are all hairy. Yeah. Gross. We solved it. Yeah. We're very just smart. Just tangled up then. 
I know. And then you're like, ugh, I gotta <laughs> shave my palms now? Jesus Christ. Just nair that shit right off. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Laser hair Wax removal. It. <laughs> Boom. We're good. Uh, Dracula is also described originally as speaking English, but it is strangely toned. So the accent has always been there. He's always supposed to have had that weird accent. Okay. Um, didn't it just have a nasal infection? No, <laughs> no. And they don't. And he, I, I think it's funny that he doesn't say, oh, he has a Romanian accent. Right. <laughs> it says it's strangely toned. Okay. So if you do like a really bad accent as Dracula, if you're playing him, that's, that's fine. Funny. It's okay. Yeah. Nobody said you had to be perfectly Romanian. Yeah. So anyway, I think it's because he's supposed to be so old. Yeah. So he would have taken um, accents from all over. Exactly. Probably. So Jonathan Harker is staying with Weird Count Dracula and he gets to the castle where he's like going to be for a few nights and Dracula goes, oh, by the way, don't wander around the castle at night. Once you're in your room, that's it till the morning. So of course, what does he do? Wanders around at night immediately. And when he's doing this, he encounters three sexy vampire ladies who like clearly want to eat him. Nice. But they're super hot. And these women are referred to as sisters in a Mm -hmm. lot of different places. Um, And they, what they do is they lure men in by being like super sexy and like, getting getting all up on them and saying sexy things and then they kill them and drink their blood. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're sirens, basically. If we want to go back to a Greek myth, they're sirens. But everybody needs a hobby, right? Yeah. That's their hobby. Right. Leave them alone. The sisters are about to make Jonathan Harker their late night snack in more ways than one. Mm. Mm-hmm. When he, um, and he's into it at first a little bit, but then he feels their teeth on his neck and he's like, this is probably bad. And just at that moment, Dracula swoops in. <gasps> yeah, I know. He's a good guy for a minute. He swoops in and bats them away. Bat. Bat. (laughs) See what I did there? Good job. And he tells these, like, sexy sisters that they cannot have Jonathan Harker until he's done doing business with him. He's got to sell him a house. Like, calm the fuck down. There's real estate happening. Money's involved. Not that you ladies would understand. Not that you basement sex demons would know anything about that. (laughs) But whatever. So instead, he he gives them what they say in the book is a, a wiggling sack. Gross. Yeah, it's well, I know it's so gross, <laughs> but it's supposed to be a bag with a child in it. Okay. Because oh. he feeds them babies yeah. to keep them in the basement. Okay. Yeah, they don't just want to like be a mommy. They like eat babies. Yeah, I mean, that's the best form of validation. <laughs> babies' blood. <laughs> yeah. They get it right on tap. Yeah. I mean, they are very sexy. Mm-hmm. They're very sexy baby eating demons. I mean, that's why I suggested it in the first place. You're very smart. Jonathan Harker, however, is no longer into being a Castle Dracula because that was not as fun as he thought it was going to be, and he starts to plan his escape. But when their business is done, so when all the real estate is done, Dracula keeps his promise, and he gathers dirt from his castle and puts it in several boxes because vampires can only sleep on their home soil. And then he hops a ship for London, you know, his new fancy house in London, Mm -hmm. leaving Jonathan Harker with his sexy demon wives in the basement. Jonathan Harker narrowly escapes with his life and then ends up delirious in a Budapest hospital where he is diagnosed with brain fever. Oh, my. Yeah, that's just an old-timey blanket term usually used to describe meningitis, encephalitis, or scarlet fever. Basically, any kind of fever that can make you sick enough to hallucinate. Yeah. They just called it brain fever and called okay. it a day. Meanwhile, on the ship bound for London, where Dracula is, you know, he hops the ship, the crew starts mysteriously disappearing one by one, and the ship runs itself aground in the port town of Whitby. And when it does so, a large dog is seen leaping ashore. Oh, Dracula. Mm-hmm. Whippy is famous for building ships and mining a black gemstone called jet. And jet is an interesting um, mineral because it is formed by like the monkey puzzle tree, which is a very interesting looking tree, decomposing down into a black gemstone. Yeah. 
Anyway, it was used to make extremely popular mourning jewelry in the Victorian era. Okay. Which looks exactly like everything vampires wear all the time. Right. right. <laughs> so and everything we want. Exactly. <laughs> you just think of like big gothic jewelry. It's that. So I really appreciate him sticking to a theme. He's like, yeah. I'm going to have Dracula here where he can get all of his jewelry. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Only makes sense. I mean, to me, it does. Yeah. We then meet 19-year-old blonde and beautiful Lucy Westerna, who is best friends with Jonathan Harker's fiance, Mina Murray. So Lucy writes a letter to Mina describing her three separate marriage proposals. Yeah. From Dr. Don, Dr. John Seward, Quincy Morris, and Arthur Holmwood. So like, okay, Lucy, we get it. You're very pretty. Everyone wants to marry you. Lucy accepts Arthur Holmwood's proposal, but then all of them remain friends together, which is how we know this is fiction. Yeah. <laughs> They're not like, it's fine. We're all friends. That never happens. Mina and Lucy then decide to go on holiday in Whitby, and Lucy begins sleepwalking. Ooh. Meanwhile, surprise, the black dog was Dracula, and he stalks Lucy as she sleepwalks nightly. And in this book, stalks means like he gets her and drinks her blood. It doesn't mean he's just following her. He also does stuff. So he's biting her and slowly draining her blood and also like making her a vampire. Right. And so, she's like dreaming of him too, uh -huh. right? Yeah. Okay. She has like a lot of weird dreams. Mina gets a letter about Jonathan's brain fever. And she's like, oh no, brain fever and goes to Budapest like one would. Meanwhile, she leaves Lucy and Whippy on holiday by herself and she slowly becomes very, very sick. But like sexy sick, you know? Yeah. Sexy ill. So rejected suitor number one, Dr. John Stewart is worried about her. You know, they're still friends. And so he calls on his old teacher, Professor Abraham Van Helsing. I, I can only think of um, Dracula musical I when I hear the name <laughs> Van Helsing here. <laughs> you guys get that reference, you get it. And if not, I'm sad for you. Um, Van Helsing, the vampire slayer, knows exactly what's wrong with Lucy, but he doesn't want to tell anybody because probably he'd look crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, he diagnoses her instead with acute blood loss and then places garlic flowers all around her room and makes her a necklace out of them, which is cute, but... Um, after he leaves, Lucy's father removes all of the garlic flowers, probably because they stink exactly like garlic. Right. She, like, rolls up into her daughter's room. Her daughter's all sick, and there's stinking flowers everywhere. Yeah. You'd be yeah. like, get that out of here. I know, but it's helpful for many reasons. It is helpful, which we will talk about that later. And then Lucy and her mother are terrified by a wolf, uh, the, which I'm assuming is, like, the dog creature we talked about before. Yeah. It's Oh. Mm -hmm. Which makes the mother immediately die of a heart attack. She's like, a wolf, ah, dead. Oh, no. Worse. And then Lucy dies shortly thereafter of her, like, weird illness. And in her final moments, Lucy's vampire side starts to emerge, and she nearly <gasps> bites her husband on the neck. But in the last minute before her death, she regains her human sense and then dies. Oh. There are, like, a million essays on how Lucy is the ideal Victorian woman, and that's what she's portrayed as, like, young, beautiful, naive, dead. You know, there's right. a lot of... You can go read them if you like. But anyway, after her burial, newspapers report children being stalked and killed. So remember, stalk means they're being like bitten on the neck and killed in the night by a bloofer lady. Oh, okay. Which is um, what Bram Stoker used as childlike language for beautiful lady. Oh. So it's little kids <laughs> being like, see what the bloofer lady. That's hilarious. Yeah. That's adorable. <laughs> I've never heard... Any child say that. No, you wouldn't, would you? No. Okay. I mean, he's Irish, so maybe it's... Oh, um, maybe. Maybe it sounds more like little Irish children saying it. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. And they're supposed to be in England. So it'd be a beautiful. I'm not even going to try it. Beautiful babe. Yeah. Beautiful babe. <laughs> beautiful lady. So anyway, these children's bodies are discovered with the telltale teeth marks in their neck, and Van Helsing figures out that it's Lucy 
who is the bluefer lady. She's not dead. Well, she is. She's undead. She's undead. Mm-hmm. And then he like assembles all of her previous suitors. He's like, hey guys, remember how we're all still friends? Let's go see what's going on. Perfect. Right. So they go to her tomb and she's like, I'm a vampire. Yeah. Probably hisses a lot. So they, they, they're like, yeah, this bad. So they stake her heart, behead her, and then fill her beheaded mouth with garlic for good measure. Mm. So they really go for it. Okay. While this is happening, Jonathan Harker and his now wife, Mina, have returned, brain fever free. And they're like, oh, are, are we hunting vampires, dudes? And they're like, yes, we are. And they both are like, cool, let's go. Awesome. Yeah. So everyone decides that they're going to, while they're doing this, while they're on the vampire hunt, they're going to stay at Dr. Seward's asylum. Perfect. Because I guess he has room. It sounds like an awful place to be, but they're like, that's where we should stay. And the men begin to hunt Dracula. In the meantime, Dracula is communicating with one of Dr. Seward's patients, a wild-looking dude named R.M. Renfield. Oh. Yes. And he eats vermin to absorb their life force, or um, that's what he thinks. That's, yeah. I mean, he is in an asylum, so thinking that might, might not mm-hmm. be great for him, but that's what he thinks. Dr. Seward describes Renfield as a zoophagus maniac or carnivorous madman, which are great titles. Yeah. So good for him. Eventually, he is revealed to be under the influence of Count Dracula. Renfield attempts to escape from the hospital multiple times to meet up with him, but Dracula also makes him an offer. He says, okay, I can control rats and bats and other creepy crawlies. And for you, like, you need their life force to be, live forever, right? Like, I, I know that and you know that. So like, what if? You just worship me and do everything I ever tell you, and I'll give you all the rats and bats you could ever want. Ooh. Good deal, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's that's where we also get familiars from. Yeah. For anyone who got any of the What We Do in the Shadows references. <laughs> uh, so Renfield agrees and then informs Dracula, like he's telling on what the group's doing. He says, oh, I heard that they're going to hunt you. So Dracula then uses Renfield to get into the asylum, and he secretly attacks Mina while he's there drinking her blood each time and forcing Mina to drink his blood on his final visit, which, of course, we know is going to make her a vampire. She is then cursed to be a vampire unless Dracula is killed. So if you kill the main vampire, the rest of them are like, I'm better, which is not included in the mythology everywhere, but here it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so as the men find Dracula's properties, because he's a real estate tycoon, remember, they discover all the boxes of dirt that he put because you need to be able to sleep in all your houses. So he yeah. put some in all of them. And the vampire hunters open all the boxes and steal communion wafers inside, oh. which I know that ruins your perfectly good vampire dirt. It does. Yeah. It's fucking ruined now. So. They learn that Dracula is also fleeing his castle in Transylvania with his very last box of dirt. (gasps) Mm -hmm. So Van Helsing and Mina go to Dracula's castle and they kill all the sexy murder brides. What a shame. They were fun time. Then Jonathan Harker and Arthur Holmwood, that is Lucy's actual husband, follow Dracula's boat on the river while Quincy Morris and John Seward, rejected suitors, follow him on land. Uh, Then they find Dracula in his box. They're finally loaded onto a wagon by some heroic Romani men and the group converges and attacks. Jonathan Harker slashes Dracula's neck and Quincy stabs him in the heart. Dracula crumbles to dust, freeing Mina from her vampire curse, and they all live happily ever after. How wonderful. Except for Quincy, who dies in the struggle. Um, yeah, but Jonathan Harker and his wife later named their son Quincy or How something cute. to that effect. So there's a cute tag on that. Oh, and Renfield, who doesn't make it out alive either. I don't think he should anyway. No, he's having a terrible time. <laughs> and he was like, wait, Dracula, wait, 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 wait. I feel like what I'm doing is wrong and I should not be telling on all these people so you can kill them. That's not great. And Dracula's like, back the fuck up. And then he beats the shit out of him and runs away. Right. Yeah. So in his final moments, he had a bit of a conscience. 
That's his problem. That was, he should not have done that. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't have had a conscious. He should have just been like, where are the rats? Take me with you, sir. <laughs> I'll be your boy. Yeah. <laughs> Do you need a boy? That comes- Let me just pack my flies. <laughs> I have this little hobo bindle full of flies and rats. That's all right, isn't it? And Dracula's like, bah, uh, uh. and then they all run away. In a wiggling sack. <laughs> that sounds like a medical condition. Yeah. <laughs> wow, the wiggling sack. I'm so sorry. You suffer from wiggling sack. <laughs> You're going to need a procedure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, so that was Dracula, which we, we did impeccably. Yeah. So now, according to the story, Vampires come with a pretty rigid set of requirements, right? Yeah. So let's see if I can list a bunch of them here. They drink blood, Mm -hmm. obviously, and use it to maintain their perpetual youth and beauty. That's part of it, because in Dracula, you see him looking like a gremlin, and then as he drinks more blood, he's, like, better looking throughout the course of the book or film, whatever you're watching. Just like food, it's their nutrition. Exactly. And when you're starving, you don't look great. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, They have no reflection or shadow. They hate garlic. They hate sunlight. Sometimes it turns them to stone. Sometimes it turns them to dust. Sometimes they just don't like it. They're immortal, seductive, manipulative, super strong. They're pale and they have long, sharp fingernails. Sometimes they have psychic powers. They can shapeshift. They die and come back to life. So technically they are undead. They sleep in coffins, must have their home soil to rest on, and they can only be killed with a stake through the heart or the occasional beheading. That pretty much covers it, right? Yeah. All right. So, vampires are also historically unholy and pained by religious paraphernalia. Mm-hmm. So much like we talked about exorcisms last, like, a couple weeks ago. And, like, so holy water would hurt them. And, like, you hold up a cross and, like, no, terrible. Right. So that's because they're, like, kind of, kind of devils. Mm-hmm. The relation is never sol- solidly formed, but there's something demonic about them. Well, but, I mean, it would have been solidly formed from, especially from Dracula. Yeah. That would have been, like... Yeah, because his, because again, his name in Romanian is the devil. Yeah. And I think that we'll, was. We'll get there. Okay. That right. comes in. Okay. Uh, and, and it wasn't until much later. Yeah. But where did all these things come from? There's this whole laundry list of vampire qualities that they have. In addition to all of this, Count Dracula is a very specific entity. Mm-hmm. So he must have had historic roots, right? Yeah. Yeah. I would think so. He definitely does. So let's, let's find them out. Okay. Okay. That's a that's a tall order, though. I think we can do these things all in one show. Yeah. I mean, we did it once already. We sure did. So we got it covered. Okay, so first, you cannot talk about Count Dracula without mentioning Vlad Tepes or Vlad III of Wallachia, a.k.a. Vlad the Impaler, a.k.a. Vlad Dragulia, three-time voivode of Wallachia, which is probably Wallachia. Sorry about that. Um, a vicious, cutthroat, cold-blooded 15th century warlord and... Romanian national treasure. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So, you guys can probably all conjure up the image of Vlad the Impaler, and I'll include his picture in the photo suite. It's iconic. He has that portrait where he's wearing the fancy hat, and he has the mustache and the long hair and the pointy nose and the whole thing. So, he definitely looks the part. He sure does, yeah. Pale, thin, aquiline nose, accented with a mustache. Fancy clothes, eyes that show the exhaustion of the undead. He kind of looks like, he kind of looks like he could be undead cruel appearance. It's all there. Can't see his hands, so I can't tell you about his palms. But he also has the name, right? He's Dragulia. So that's mm-hmm. that's Dracula. Vlad was the second son of Vlad Dracul, a.k.a. 
Vlad II, that's his dad, who became ruler of Wallachia in 1436. Now, Vlad Dracul means Vlad the Dragon, and he got his name for his membership in the Order of the Dragon, which is a fancy 15th century fraternity for royals who hated the Ottomans. Oh, man. I love a good Ottoman. You mean like, like to prop your feet up? Yeah. What's their problem? <laughs> They're like, I hate being comfortable. It's the <laughs> I sleep wild. in a coffin, you guys. Get it together. What do they put their feet on then? The Ottoman Servants. Empire, who they also hate. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> they have it. Oh, I gotcha. Oh, there it is. <laughs> so, Dracula, or sometimes pronounced Dragulia, is a sobriquet meaning uh, son of the dragon. So that's what Dracula really means. And it mean, it's, it's in medieval Romanian. It would mean that. Um, his brother went by Radu the Handsome. Well. So you tell me who got the short end of the stick. <laughs> Your little dragon, and he's just handsome. I don't know. I think they both made out. Yeah, okay. That's fair enough. I, I don't have pictures of Radu. Maybe he was very handsome. Yeah. He would have to be. So in modern Romanian, which is slightly different than the medieval variety, Dracul does mean devil, which is how Bram Stoker came to it. He stumbled across the name in a book he was leafing through in the Whitby Library while they're on holiday. And that's Cute. how Whitby comes into play because okay. that's where he was. And he thought it meant Vlad the Devil, mm. which is an awfully compelling character, wouldn't you right. say? yeah. So in the extensive notes that Bram Stoker took while writing Dracula, notes which were unearthed in 1972 by Raymond T. McNally and Radu Florescu, not Radu the Handsome, though I don't know, maybe he was also handsome. And in which case, good for him. Mm. Um, but they were found in like a barn in Pennsylvania. So I love they were just shits like that. I know. They were not taken care of. They were just like yeah. in the barn. Well, no, nobody probably knew they were really there. Well, right? there's a whole chain of events on how they got to be there. And it's a longer story. And I, I can okay. tell it in uh, Host Mortem or something. But okay. like they were passed down to several people. And then someone, Dracula wasn't really famous for a time. And they yeah. were like, mm, whatever, I don't yeah. care. And so they just got forgotten. And then these guys found it. It was like a huge deal when this happened because he took a hundred pages of notes. Yeah. So if anybody has questions on like, where did all this stuff come from? Well, a lot of them are answered in these notes. Um, so according to them, Bram Stoker says, quote, Dracula means devil. Valachians are accustomed to giving it as a surname to any person who rendered himself conspicuous by courage, cruel actions, or cunning. Which is absolutely not true. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that he was like, this sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> and he wrote that down. Well. He's, an, he's a writer. He is a writer, and he was not writing history. He was writing historical fiction. Yeah. So anyway, Wallachians of Vlad's time would not have thought his name meant anything like that, though he would live up to the title in all of its forms. Vlad Dracula was a cold-blooded, sadistic, ruthless warlord bent on revenge who took no shit and made examples of everyone, even the innocent. His father, Vlad II Dracul, attempted to strike a compromise between the Ottoman Sultan and the Holy Roman Empire. So there's like this we're going on for a long time. We are not going to talk about the whole military side of it. It would take us 17 hours. You can go read about it if you want. It is long. But anyway, Vlad Dracul is like, I'm going to fix this shit. Let's have like a, let's, let's strike an accord. But this involves him giving a tribute to the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, which is something he previously refused to do. He was like, no, I'm not giving him any shit. And the Sultan was like, if you don't give me some shit, we're going to have war forever. And he was like, fine, fuck, we have to give him some shit. And for some reason, it was determined that this tribute had to include Vlad Dracul's two young sons. Yeah. Little dragon mm -hmm. and handsome Radu. Oh. Worst. The Ottomans were like, we need a boy. Yeah. <laughs> and I read more on this after we did the show. And you know what? 
they fucking loved having a boy. Yeah. A lot of times when they would like triumph over a rivaling faction, they would be like, and now we need a hundred to a thousand boys, depending on the size of the situation, just to be their boy servants. Okay. They fucking loved a boy. Yeah. So. I mean, they're doing things for them. Yep. I have two boys and I would love <laughs> if they did any of the chores. <laughs> if they brought home an ottoman for you. Yes. <laughs> just prop my feet right up. Exactly. So the Ottomans <laughs> kept the, the boys for a little while, but sensing they needed to gain a little traction with the Catholics, they released Vlad III to rule in 1448 after his father's assassination in 1447. And as you can imagine, spending 11 years of his childhood as a prisoner of war did things yeah. to young Vlad. Mm. You're not coming away the same after that. So as soon as he came to power, however, Vlad Dracula, or however you want to pronounce it, immediately put to death all the boyars who had conspired against his father. And boyars are high-ranking nobles. Um, and then he was characterized as both a national hero to the people who needed them gone and a cruel tyrant to the people who liked them, obviously. Mm -hmm. So this is a kind of Robin Hoodie situation. Vlad was heralded for restoring order to a destabilized principality, yet showed no mercy towards thieves, murders, or anyone who plotted against his rule, or just anyone. Yeah. <laughs> just really anyone, for that matter. Vlad demonstrated his intolerance for quote-unquote criminals by utilizing impalement as his favorite, favored form of execution, which he learned during his youth spent in Ottoman captivity. Oddly enough, they taught him how to do it, and then he just you were a whole bunch of them. So for those of you who do not know what impalement is, and I, I don't think there's any, but just in case, it is a method of execution wherein a sharpened spike is traditionally inserted through your groin and then goes through your body and exits through your, traditionally your mouth, but somewhere in your head or neck. Vlad did not always abide by traditional standards. Sometimes he just right through the stomach down like horizontally, sometimes he would angle. He liked to be creative with his impaling, but traditionally, right. that's how you do it. You basically make a human kebab. And nobody loved doing this more than blood. I mean, you'll find it other places in history, but never more than you will here. Let's put it that way. Vlad fiercely resisted the Ottoman rule, hated putting his feet up, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. having both repelled the Ottomans and pushed back several times. He went on to conquer several other countries, including Transylvania, where he was said to take over the historic Castle Bran. But in reality, he did not ever live there. It's just like this beautiful castle in Transylvania that people are like, that's definitely Dracula's castle. So we're going to mm. go visit it when we're there. Uh, what, what he really lived in was um, the crumbling ruins of Ponari Castle, which was in Romania. Now, this is a castle that was built by the Wallachians in like 1100 and then abandoned in like 1300. So it's just a pile of bricks he's kind of living in, like so a fort. So it's much nicer than this castle. Yeah, for sure. I would always choose pile of bricks yeah. over castle any day. He's not well. No, he's <laughs> not well. And he's surrounded by a forest of swaying impaled bodies. Oh, sounds nice. At least he does some landscaping. I mean, you got to have a fence. <laughs> yeah. Got to block in your property. But I, Brand Castle is like a thousand times nicer, so I get the allure. I get why you would be like, no, let's make it this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Transylvania was occupied in part at the time by German Saxons, who Vlad really hated. And so he took zero issues with violently murdering them and anyone who supported them or any of his enemies for that matter, which is how he allegedly came to impale a bunch of innocent people, including pregnant women and children. So this is awful. I'm going to warn you guys right now, but it is very famous. The German Saxons describe it like this. Quote, 
Vlad had a big copper cauldron built and put a lid made of wood with holes in it on top. He put the people in the cauldron and put their heads in the holes and then fastened them in there. Then he filled it with water and set a fire underneath it and let the people cry their eyes out until they were boiled to death. And then he invented frightening, terrible, unheard of tortures. He ordered that women be impaled together with their suckling babies on the same stake. The babies fought for their lives at their mother's breasts until they died. Then he had the woman's breast cut off and put the babies inside head first. Thus, he had them impaled together. So what's worse than like, like baby impaler? Like this, he, he's the, in the words of the Saxons, he's probably the most demonic presence you've ever heard of in your life. That's horrible. It is really horrible. Um, but I'm going to tell you right now, it's not totally true. Yeah. So a moment of rest. The Saxons also called him a blood drinker. That's where that, there is no like historical reference for that. This is all from the books the Saxons wrote about him who were his enemies. And they said that he would often sit down to a meal in his castle that included bits of the impaled and that he would catch their blood in a chalice and dip his bread in it. But these claims are thought to be wildly exaggerated myths created by, of course, his enemies or people he's just picking off one by one. The baby torture and the blood drinking and cannibalism, that is. But the rest is absolutely true. He did mm-hmm. impale tons of people, but I there's no historical reference for like the baby impaling and stuff right. like that. So works containing the stories about Vlad's cruelty were published in Low German in the Holy Ro- Roman Empire before 1480. The stories about Vlad's raids in Transylvania are clearly based on eyewitness accounts because they do contain accurate details, but they are also punctuated with some fancifully evil shit. They describe Vlad as a, quote, demented psychopath, a sadist, a gruesome murderer, and a masochist, worse than Caligula and Nero. And, like, people love reading that kind of stuff. That shocking, sensational, baby-eating nonsense was very popular. In addition to that, the invention of movable type printing contributed to the popularity of these stories because they were readily available. You could buy these books in way more locations and they could be produced much more quickly. Um, And that made them basically the first bestseller ever in Europe. So wild. Mm -hmm. To enhance sales, again, they were published as books, but also they had woodcuts on their title pages. So woodcuts are like illustrations of the time. Yeah. And they depict horrible scenes. For instance, the editions published in Nuremberg in 1499 and Strasbourg in 1500 depict Vlad dining at a table surrounded by dead or dying people impaled on poles. So they're like around his dinner table and he's just like sitting there with his chalice. These printed works, though, no matter how many facts were peppered into them, were the pulp fiction or propaganda of their time. Um, they, they sold. So obviously they're going to make them as crazy as humanly possible. Now, I'm positive that Vlad Dragulia did horrifying things, but it is unlikely that he sat at a table of skewered babies and dipped his baguette in their blood. Right. Still, though, these stories are very, very available, and the ghastly reputation he has persists, and some of it's earned, but some of it is not. Either way, Vlad Dracula did more than enough to be considered a devil, and maybe to inspire one of the most iconic villains of all time. Maybe. But did he? In reality, Bram Stoker only knew a few general details about the life and times of Vlad the Devil. A lot of people are going to tell you that he got the information about Vlad from a Romanian professor that he traveled on a train with and was friends with. But if you look at his notes, there's nothing about that. There's a, his time on the train, he's like talks about the Carpathian Mountains and a little bit of other that stuff, but he, he doesn't have any of the information. It's just not in the notes. It doesn't exist. Yeah. 
he just kind of implied Vlad as an avatar for his vampire count. Yes, he looks like Dracula. He has the name, the cruelty, the supposed blood drinking in the castle in Transylvania, and a whole lot of stakes through hearts too, so that does come in. But the other things, not so much. Yeah. First of all, he wasn't very charming or particularly successful with women. Uh, he clearly wasn't immortal. Vlad was killed by his own troops in 1477 while disguised as a Turkish soldier. That's so wild. So he was killed by friendly fire. He used to dis- he used to disguise himself as a Turk to like spy on the enemy, so he would go unnoticed in their camps. Okay. But for one reason or another, he was lurking around his own camp in this outfit. And they were like, oh no, an enemy. And they fucking killed him because of course they did. Oh my God. I know. <laughs> Vlad was also out in the sun all the time on the battlefield and he had no issues with garlic and seemed to have a shadow and a reflection. And he certainly couldn't shapeshift. Um, if he could, he probably wouldn't have needed to disguise himself as a Turkish soldier and maybe he would have lived to impale another day. Or maybe that's what he shapeshifted into. Himself in a different outfit? Yeah. Bad shapeshifting, bro. Yeah. Even if he did drink blood, though, it wasn't because he needed to or it kept him young. It was a defiant act of cruelty, which is very different. And he wasn't undead, even though he certainly looked like it. There are clear records of Vlad's birth, and he only died once. Vlad was Dracula's hard candy shell. But who was his center? His chewy nougat center. Gross. So many other things are way gross. I know. <laughs> Uh, so after, this is another note, after our live show, I had a, one of our fiends come up to me and tell me how disappointed they were that I hadn't mentioned. <laughs> the whole show, no, just kidding. <laughs> she was like, I was waiting for you to tell the story. Like, I can't yeah. believe you left this out. Uh, she, and she mentioned Vlad's usage of bats during his military career, which is how people say that bats got involved in the Dracula mythology. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's funny. I really did do a lot of research on this one. And though I boiled it down considerably for everybody, because I didn't think you all wanted to sit through a lesson on Wallachian military tactics and the lineage of their royal families. Not at all. Not at all. I didn't run into a single story about Vlad and Bats. So I did a little digging. And here is the story as the internet likes to tell it. Now, mind you, I found this in like a YouTube film type thing and a Reddit feed. And those are the only places I could really find it. This version is in a Reddit feed from four years ago. And the poster says, quote, Recently, in an unsighted post somewhere, so we're off to a great start, I came across a story about Vlad. Apparently, he pulled his troops out of a valley so that the sun was in his enemy's eyes and then released rabid bats that flew away from the sun and toward the enemies. These bats attacked them and led to many infections within the enemy ranks, which ultimately caused them to lose. Apparently, they believed that the soldiers turned into bats and hence resulted the stories about Dracula's capability of turning into a bat. Mm -hmm. That did not happen. No, it didn't. <laughs> like, none, none of that happened or is possible, unfortunately. Okay. It's a great story. Great story. And if it happened, wow, that'd be great. Yeah. But, like, um, you can't go, I know exactly which bats are rabid. I'm yeah. going to select them. <laughs> it's true that brat, bats are the number one carrier of rabies. I don't know if that was true in the 15th century, but it is true now. Um, you can't train a bat either, no matter how much you want to or how hard you try. They don't do tricks in movies, and nobody has them as pets. And all of that is for a reason. Yeah. They just bat. They just bat. So, Vlad, he did, however, adopt some other weird guerrilla tactics, and here's a wiki rundown on those. Quote, his cavalry made several hit-and-run attacks. He would also send ill people suffering from lethal diseases, such as leprosy, tuberculosis, and in more significant numbers, those who suffered from the bubonic plague, to intermix with the Turks and infect them. This is important. Remember this for later. 
the bubonic plague managed to spread in the Ottoman army. But if you really want to make this theory work, the Vlad had bats theory work, you could, I suppose, lean into the fact that Vlad did mount a very infamous night attack. And there are several species of bat that live in Romania, such as horseshoe bats, mouse-eared bats, noctules, which are evening bats. Ooh. Bats of the evening. Oh. Wink, wink. <laughs> Serotines, party-colored bats. Oh. So they have party bats. Disco bats. I know, I love them. <laughs> Pipistrels, genus. Hipstugo and long-eared bats. So all of those live in Romania. And because it was happening at night, this one famous attack, I guess there could have been bats in attendance. Yeah. They may have been flying overhead here and there, though they do not run from the sun. And they don't like to bite people. Yeah. And they don't eat them yeah. or anything. No. I, I, and also, like, I won't even bother you guys with the facts of rabies infections. Yeah. But that doesn't align with any of them. Yeah. Uh, but the, uh, the whole bat thing can be cr- pretty confusing because it does yeah. exist. We're not really totally sure where it came from. But Leslie, do you think you could clear any of that up for us? I think I, that I can. I would love for that. For sure. Okay, so folklore linking bats and vampires is particularly intriguing because there are in reality only three types of vampire bats out of nearly over a thousand bat species. Wow. And only one of those three actually feeds on the blood of other mammals. And that would be the common vampire bat or Desmodus rotundus. And that was not in the list that I... It was not. None of these. That I listed off in Romania. So they're not there. There's no vampire bat. No. All three vampire bats live in Latin America. Oh. There aren't any in the U.S. or in Europe except in zoos. Well, the Philadelphia Zoo has one and they feed them little dishes of blood and you can see them licking it up if you go in there. It is wild. (laughs) The other two species, the hairy-legged vampire, <laughs> Dufia equidata, and the white-wing vampire, who hangs out with the evening bats, <laughs> I assume. Yeah. <laughs> That's the uh, Damus young guy, I think. He's a young right? guy. He Looks sure good. Is, There's yes. their eternal youth. We yes. solved it. Mm-hmm. They are rare and so poorly studied that almost nothing is known about them other than that they feed on birds. So that's the other two. So they feed on, they'll like drink the blood of the birds, but the other, um, the vampire bat that is the Desmodus rotundus will actually uh, drink blood from mammals. That's the one you see that like bites cows and stuff, right? Yes. Okay. The common myth that vampire bats are huge is wrong. Uh, So in Dracula, they talk about like this bat being like larger. (sighs) That's a flying fox. Yes. Well, yeah, but also other other accounts will also yeah. like they they just keep exaggerating yeah. the how big they are. Yeah. So they are three to four inches long with a wingspan of seven inches. So, so tiny. Yeah, tiny. Um, and weigh about as much as two AA batteries. They're just a little precious. They're so precious. They are grayish brown in color and have a cute little flat face that looks like an English bulldog or a pig. They really are cute. They feed on a wide variety of animals, extreme examples of which include sea lions and pelicans that inhabit desert regions off the coast of northern Chile. And uh, near human settlements, however, they feed on a variety of domestic animals, including chickens, but cows, horses, and pigs appear to be their preferred prey because they're like the the slowest of the bunch. They're a big target, too. (laughs) Like, I'm definitely going to hit that. Yeah. Another common myth is that vampire bats suck blood from their prey, and this is also wrong. 
They have these razor sharp teeth that they use to make a small cut into the skin of livestock. And then they lap up the blood from the wound. And they have an anticoagulant in their saliva called Draculin, which keeps the blood flowing. (laughs) And Draculin was named after the book Draculin. Right, right, right. It wasn't there to begin. Yeah. Would have been real smart if it was there first. For sure. They only take blood from sleeping animals because they're very kind. They they don't want to bother them. Their brains are evolved to be sensitive to the breathing patterns that signal that a mammal is sleeping and their heat sensors mean that they can easily detect where the blood's flowing close to the surface of a potential host. Oh, I know. So they're very smart. They are. Yeah. If they're successful, the animal never finds out that the bat was there until maybe the next morning. Like you might find out that it touched you because it's also, there's no pain because the blood comes out very like fast and um, it's not, you know, congealing or anything like that. And it's just right. a really tiny cut and they just, it's very pain free. Yeah. If they can't, so each night vampire bats drink about half their body weight in blood. If they can't find blood for two nights in a row, they will die. Oh no. And so, and remember how light they are. It's yeah. only like, it's just like a few table, like a teaspoon or two that they need to yeah. like make their body weight. Unlike some other species of bats, vampire bats can walk, run, and jump. They have very strong hind legs and a special thumb that helps them take off after feeding. Oh. So, what came first, vampires or vampire bats? No. Simply put, the myth of vampires came first and had been around for centuries. Right, it's pretty old. It wasn't until the 15th and 16th century, though, that explorers in Central and South America observed a species of bats lapping up the blood of cattle that the bats were given the label vampires. Got it. Most of the recorded accounts involved witnessing the vampire bats drink blood off of the livestock and sometimes their companions. Like, so sometimes, like, the people they traveled with, they'd be like, oh, my God, a bat bit them, like, in their sleep. Most of the accounts usually involved a lot of blood and were most likely exaggerated. In 1511, Petro Matir de Dangira described seeing bats as large as pigeons swooping down on the camp and biting soldiers as they slept. Accounts like this one is an example of how explorers exaggerated the size and aggressiveness of vampire bats. In 1565, M.G. Benzoni provided a graphic description in La Historia del Mundo Nuevo on his toes being bitten by bats while he was asleep in what is present-day Costa Rica. So he, like, just describes it as, like, they're, like, they're just ripping at his toes. Ew. And that's not what they do no. either. Naturalist Thomas Pennant wrote that the vampire bat used its enormous wings to fan its victims to sleep so that oh. it could drill its sharpened tongue into the veins without them noticing. <laughs> that doesn't feel like something you wouldn't notice, first yeah. of all. And second of all, I'm not going to be like, a breeze, I'm out. Yeah, right? Like, I know. It's so funny. So that definitely didn't happen. But if you look up pictures of these vampire bats feeding, their tongue is is kind of long and it does almost, like in a photo, it definitely looks like it's just sucking blood like through the tongue. Yeah, if you but watch them eat at Philly Zoo, you see them like, 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 like. yeah. yeah. <laughs> In 1796, John Stedman wrote of being bitten by a vampire in Iguana, describing it as a bat of monstrous size that sucks the blood from men and cattle when they are fast asleep, even sometimes till they die. 
And by they, I think they mean cattle, but maybe they meant the bats. I don't know. I just drink blood until I explode. (laughs) (laughs) But it wasn't until 1810 that vampire bats were first officially described in scientific literature. In 1830, the first official documentation of vampire bats was published by Charles Darwin. So he definitely ate some of them. Definitely. 100%. And then famously, the 1897 release of Bram Stoker's Dracula is what solidified the relationship between vampires and bats when Dracula turned himself into a bat. Bat. Bats almost always had a bad rap. Um, Early civilizations just didn't know what to think of them. They looked like birds, but they also looked like mice. And then they weirdly slept upside down and they did like to, they liked to live in caves and they only came out at night and night was only for the wicked. I want a t-shirt that said night is for the wicked. With like an evening bat on it. An evening bat (laughs) and a party bat. Yeah, for sure. They got to be there. Yeah. Maybe we put a disco ball on it and bats and it says night is for the wicked. Right. So it's the evening bat, party bat, and the vampire bat. I would wear that every day of my life. Amazing. Let's get on that. (laughs) We could probably work with like, like a bat conservation. Like maybe. Something. Listen, you guys, I want this to happen. (laughs) However, there were some cultures like Egyptians that believed that bats could help keep demons from coming into their home and causing afflictions like poor eyesight, toothaches, fever, and baldness. So they would hang the bats over their doorways and they would just keep out all the bad vibes. I have a bat in a lantern out in my living room. So and that's like, why you're not bald. There you go. Or Will. He has a gray head hair. I think it more works for Will than me. But yeah. That's okay. <laughs> could work for anybody. Yeah. In the Middle Ages, bats were thought to be a witch's familiar. Again, it's probably because they came out at night, so many believe that the bat could deliver messages between its witch and the devil. It's like a carrier pigeon, but, yes, a, but a bat. But a bat. Got it. Uh, but luckily, today we know the truth. Vampire bats are just a very considerate, cute, tiny little bulldog-faced mice that only want to, like, a little bit of blood and will make sure not to bother you in the process. You won't even feel it. You'll be you fine. You won't even feel it. It's totally fine. So I have two fun facts about bats yes. to add onto the end. Scientists were so impressed with the way vampire bat saliva stopped blood from clotting that they are creating a similar substance that could lead to new medicines for people with diseases, such as a stroke. Interesting. And vampire bats, I love this one. Vampire bats will share their food with other members, sometimes related or unrelated, of their colony who weren't able to get a meal. How do they share it? I don't know. Do they like come drink off of the same cow or are they like, I have a Maybe mouthful of cow blood that's for probably, you? It's like probably <laughs> how birds feed <laughs> little baby birds. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're animals. Yeah. Holly. Right, I don't know fine. what to tell you. <laughs> but I like that they share that's kind. Yeah. Maybe they put it like in their hand. They got thumbs. Maybe they, they <laughs> carry it in their wings. In their wing, which <laughs> yeah. is kind of yeah. a little wing cup. <laughs> yeah. 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 Great. <laughs> <laughs> and that's bats. All right. So that's that's how the bats came to be. Um, yeah. They were always, I would say the bats were always, well, so the bats were always associated with vampires. Right. From the 15th century. Right. Vampires had already existed. So Brahm just kind of took that and went with it and turned, and he's the one that made it popular that they would turn into it. Although the idea of like a witch turning into a bat was also like a myth. Yeah, you can go back to like Salem witch trials and there's lots of talk of, like right. she had a bat or a little yellow bird that would come yeah. and drink from a mole on her hip and that was her familiar. Yeah. So but, event, eventually we'll do the Salem Witch Trials, you guys. Yeah. 
I promise. Okay. So we covered Vlad the Impaler and bats. The only other real and true man said to have shaped Count Dracula was actually not a man at all. It was none other than the Blood Countess, Ergebet Balturi. Now, we've talked about the Blood Countess at length. She has a whole episode of this podcast devoted to her. But because we are now looking at her through Dracula-colored glasses, so we're examining more of her actions, let's review her highlight reel. And if you want all the Blood Countess information, like, like all of it in existence, you can go listen to our episode on her. So, Erzsébet Beltori was a Hungarian noblewoman and alleged serial killer. Uh, Erzsébet was born in the late 16th century in royal Hungary, which was ruled by a series of royal families whose pure bloodlines have ruled different parts of the area for centuries. Now, you may well have guessed that the only way to keep royal bloodlines pure for centuries is inbreeding. Just lots and, and lots of inbreeding. And it is theorized in many sources that the Baron and Baroness Bautori, Erzsébet's parents, were actually first cousins, which is like not super great for the genetic variation humans require to be born healthy. In fact, it can pass along a whole host of genetic abnormalities and diseases like hemophilia in the case of the descendants of Queen Victoria of England and epilepsy in the Hungarian royal families, which is what our countess was. While she was always described as beautiful and extremely bright, so this is a very beautiful woman, not someone who looks like a sallow, like, cave dweller. <laughs> from an early age, Erzsébet suffered from violent seizures and went through a host of strange medical cures for them at the time. Unfortunately, for a really, really, really long time in human history, people just did not know what to do with seizures. They were, it's hard to explain violent jerking motions, catatonia, and the lack of control. And all of this lends itself to like a demonic possession. Right. So mostly they would see people like looking like they were having this out-of-body experience and they'd be like, oh, that is for sure a devil. This is likely the source of the later in life rumblings that the Countess was possessed by the devil himself. Much like Vlad the devil, we also have a little bit of devil in here. Lots of devils up in here. To treat her seizures, it is believed that the Countess was spoon-fed small amounts of the blood of non-epileptics or had the blood of a non-sufferer smeared on her lips. As a child, this was often done with a shallow dish fashioned from the skull cap of a non-sufferer. That's wild. It's pretty grim. But yeah, historically, gross. as a child, she did drink blood. So there, even if she doesn't later, I mean, there's more blood drinking later in the story, but even if that stuff is untrue, she yeah. definitely did as a child. Yeah, and that makes sense because I've heard that before mm-hmm. in... Um, in olden days. Yeah, like, they had a lot of wild they, theories. They just weren't sure. <laughs> no, they sure weren't. They really weren't. So this early exposure to blood, co- blood consumption as a treatment to promote health and vitality would make a lasting impression on the young countess. So now we're getting more into Dracula territory. The countess was raised in a noble household and was therefore conditioned to treat her servants and lessers cruelly. And so when she witnessed violence against non-nobility, she wasn't disturbed in the least. So if she saw like a guy being beaten in the town square, Oh, she'd just be like, <laughs> that's fine, and walk away. Right. And this kind of like cold indifference to violence is something that you have to breed into a person. People don't just have it. Well, I guess some of them do. I don't know. I, I, I don't feel know. Like she, was just, she was just too rich to care. She, she was much too rich to care. You <laughs> yeah. are correct. And also she looked at these people as though they were not people. They were just like animals to her. And that's important to yeah. distinguish. So that's not the end to her like weird early childhood exposure to violence. 
When she was just 13, which is a full adult by the standards of the time, Erjebet met and fell in love with a local peasant boy, and the two had to hide their affair because Erjebet was already promised to another, and he was like a peasant, which would not have flown with their families. The pair were able to keep their love a secret until Erjebet wound up pregnant. At 13. So wild. That's not good. The baby was deemed a disgrace, though, by her family, because, again, it's a peasant baby. And so its birth was kept very quiet, and the baby, as soon as it was born, was spirited away to live with a peasant family in Wallachia. And I truly wish that this story ended with that child becoming Vlad the Impaler. Did it? Did it not? I know. Does it? Doesn't it? It it doesn't. Oh. As I just said, uh, Vlad the Impaler died in 1477. But wouldn't that make a great story? It would. I think we should write some fan fiction. I'm claiming it right now. The historical fiction where they're related is mine. Okay. End of story. Now, Erzhebet's eventual husband, Count Ferenc Nadazdi, also fought in the war against the Ottomans. Another Ottoman hater on our hands. I know. They really hated it. Ferenc was rarely home during the war, so the castle, Castle Chaita, which is where they lived, and it's really pretty and nice, was... More it seemed to be more the property of the countess and the count because he was never there. She so was always there. So there she is in her big, beautiful, proper castle. We have that now. And she was often left in charge while her husband was away too at the time. And she would like be in charge of the the castle during wartime. Okay. There's there's pick there's like accounts of her actively fighting to defend the castle and like being helpful to people during this time. It's in stark contrast to the rest of her reputation. So people don't usually tell that side of the story, but they do exist. So. Ferenc was rarely home during the war, but when he was, he would share his growing love of torture and brutality with his young wife by telling her stories from the battlefield. And she was enchanted. Nice. She was like, more bloody stories, more, more, more. Glad they have something, you know. Listen, all women like true crime. (laughs) I'm just going to put it out there. Uh, Yeah. Could be any one of us, for sure. Hearing about torture, though, wasn't enough for the young countess. She wanted to try it out for herself, which is where we most of us draw the line. But who would consent to taking such treatment? Or if not consent, who would at least keep quiet about it or not be missed? Erzabet realized there was really only one viable option, and that was servant girls. Because, of course, it was expected for her to treat them cruelly. So what was the harm in being like a little creative? At first, she and her husband performed the torturous acts together, beating the girls, slicing their skin with knives, burning them with fireplace implements, and placing red-hot coins on their skin, which is certainly creative. Erzhebet did unusual things, things most people wouldn't even imagine, like placing pins under the girls' fingernails or removing their nails altogether with tools. She would also soak small pieces of paper in oil and then roll them up and place them between the girls' toes and light them on fire. Yeah. Among the many gifts Ferenc bought for his young wife was a glove with sharp metal claws on the ends so she could use this to drag them across the faces of young servant girls and watch them bleed. Okay. So there's our long fingernails. Draco always has the long nails. That kind of shows you where that came Mm -hmm. from. If we're going to subscribe to the fact that she did influence the formation of this character. Ferenc, though, was only interested in causing these girls pain. He didn't want to kill them. But the same could not be said for Ejebet. Ferenc often had to hold her back. But Ferenc, as I just said, wasn't always home. Ejebet's obsession only grew stronger, and as it evolved, it became kind of sexual in nature. So, you know, sexy vampires. 
The burnings and mutilations migrated to the girls' breasts and genitals, and many were rendered unable to walk or use the bathroom properly. There are some pretty vivid descriptions of this. We don't really need one right now. These beatings and mutilations would take place within the confines of the countess's chambers, mostly, though, and they rarely occurred outside the women's wing of the castle. Because if you remember back in old timey times, like, royalty would live in a castle, and the queen or countess would have her own wing of the castle and her own bedroom, and all her servants would be there and all her baby maids and stuff, and the kids would live with her. Right. And then on the other side of the castle would be the king or the count in his own area. And there would be like a common space or one would go to the other on nights where they decided to fuck. Yeah. But that was it. Well, yeah, because I think sleeping together was just the life of peasants, like people that didn't have enough money to like have more than one bed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they they had their own wing of the castle. So even like how we sleep now is like a somewhat newer concept in like all Peasants we are. I know. So... It's easy to keep these things secret is what I'm getting at because she has her whole own wing of the castle. In 1601, Ferenc fell gravely ill and never really recovered. So Erzabet was left to her own devices now and the servant girls began to disappear altogether. So if he's sick, he's in his bedroom in his side of the castle and he doesn't see anything. After Ferenc fell ill, the Nadajdi family felt really bad for poor Erzabet. Like, poor little lady all by herself. What's she gonna do? Right. So sad. So they sent one of their longtime servants, uh, a woman named Anna Duravolia, to be a live-in companion for her. And Anna would prove to be more than a companion. She was an accomplice and, in some accounts, a lover. So who knows? As opposed to being horrified, Anna was fascinated by the vicious behavior of her new mistress. In fact, she thought the countess was holding back and could go even further with her experiments. In the summer months, the countess and Anna would take the girls out into the courtyard After they had been beaten and starved, so they were too weak to fight at this point, then they would strip off all of their clothing and smear their naked bodies with sticky honey. Then they would take these girls and lay them in an anthill and watch the insects come to bite them all over. Which is like an actual nightmare. Yeah. I remember this in their episode, and I just heard, I think I said it then too, but it reminds me of like Ramsay from um, Game of Thrones. There's so much Game of Thrones in here. There's like a ton. Yeah. Sometimes these poor girls would be left there in the anthill for days. This activity was, however, no longer possible when the weather turned cold, but the countess and her right-hand woman found an alternative for that. When the temperature dipped below freezing, they would take the girls into the courtyard at dusk in just their underdress. They would tie them to the garden wall and drench them in water and watch as the sun set and the icicles began to form. The girl would been would then be left there throughout the entire night. She might live, but more than likely by morning, she would be still and solid and dead. Now, these tactics are actually, I believe we talked about them in our Eastern State episode. They're something that like the crueler prisons actually did employ, not leaving them overnight. They weren't supposed to be left overnight. Yeah. They were supposed to be left out there for like a little while, yeah. wet in the cold. But at Eastern State, like, the same kind of thing we're talking about here happened. People were left there for, like, way too long yeah. and froze to death. And one particular session of torture, however, changed the game for the Blood Countess. And this is where she gets her nickname from. Every evening before bed, the Countess would have one of her ladies' maids brush out her long chestnut-colored hair. And one evening, the young girl doing the brushing hit a snag in her mistress's long locks, which, like, could not have been that uncommon. Because we are not in the era of constant washing and brushing of hair. And everybody's hair was down to their ass. But whatever. 
The countess then turned on her young servant, pulled the brush from her hand, and began to beat the girl with it mercilessly. In the process, the girl's blood splattered across the room, and a large splot landed on the blood countess's hand. She saw it and wiped the blood away, but in doing so, she noticed that that spot on her hand where the blood had been was softer and more youthful in appearance than the rest of her skin. Oh. (gasps) So it was then the countess connected this moment with the treatments of her youth and thought, well, if the blood of the well could stop sickness, then it stands to reason that the blood of the young could probably reverse the effects of aging, right? Yeah. By that logic. You think she would have found that out sooner, the amount of blood she's already I mean, she just didn't notice. Like, she just happened to pay attention that one time. So. Ridiculous. I know. From that point on, the countess would let the blood of her victims drain into a silver chalice or other, or like a bathtub or other collection barrels or a lot of like illustrations of the blood countess where she has girls hung upside down and is draining their blood out of them. So this is like a purposeful blood draining. And if she drained it into a chalice, she would drink it all down when she was done. So here's some more blood drinking because she did it when she was a kid. So it's not weird to her. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes during her attacks, she would just bypass that altogether and take large ripping bites out of the girl's flesh, usually on their breast. And she would eat it while the girls thrashed underneath her. Sometimes you're just like, I don't have time. Just going to bite a titty off. I just got to bite a titty and then then I'll be fine. I mean, sometimes you you don't have the time. Yeah. Sometimes the countess would apply the blood to her face and hands as a skin treatment as well. But this was not enough. And so she collected buckets and buckets of the stuff, pouring it into her personal bathtub. And again, I said sometimes there are illustrations of her just hanging the girls over her bathtub to drain the blood. And she would soak in it for as long as she possibly could. And like, blood does not stay not disgusting for long. No, it gets thick. It and coagulates and it rots because it is organic matter. Right. So you, you have to imagine that she had to kill, and we go into this in the episode, but she had to kill something like 44 girls to fill yeah. a bathtub. Yep. But that would have had to have been done in a very short period of time. Like for her all to, at once. Yeah. Like basically all of them had to happen at once or within a day so that she could sit in it. Otherwise, it would have been rotted and too thick to sit in. Yeah. So like, woo, that's pretty intense. But all this fun couldn't last forever. Before dying, Ferenc entrusted his heirs and widow to Yergi Thurso who paid pretty close attention to the insane amount of girls coming into the castle that were never heard from again. He was like, something is amiss. Yeah. And I mean, somebody had to eventually. 44 girls for a bath and like several baths. Right. That's not little. (laughs) And in 1610, King Matthias II assigned Yorgi Thurzo to investigate the countess and her supposed cruelty. And so he did. He ordered two notaries to collect evidence in March of 1610, And by October of 1610, they had collected 52 witness statements. By 1611, that number had risen to over 300. According to the testimonies, Erzhebet's first victims were girls aged 10 to 14 years old. They were daughters of the lesser gentry, which were upper class people, and those who had money but were not nobility. So these are just like rich people. And these girls were sent there to the castle by their parents to learn courtly etiquette. This is not uncommon. They would go be like, we're going to live in the palace for a couple of years and learn how to be a lady. But these girls were pretty conspicuous when they sustained grave injuries or went missing altogether. So the countess moved on to servants pretty fast. She had to make up excuses, basically, for those girls. Yeah. On December 30th, 1610, Georgi Thurso went to the countess's castle, which would be Castle Chaita, to arrest her and four of her servants. 
Anna Dravolia mysteriously died before she could face any consequences. And many people suspect that she saw the writing on the wall and took her own life. Yeah. Because she was a noble woman, it was decided that the countess would not be executed or placed in prison because that carries a, like a big social weight and they didn't want to do that. So they detained her in Castle Chaita for the remainder of her days. Some people say she was bricked up into a small chamber with a lone window, but there are reports that she wandered the grounds. So I don't know which one is true. But she stayed in the castle until her death at the age of 54. After the countess had passed, it is said that a journal was found hidden in her private chambers. In the pages was said to be the names of over 650 girls. She had kept a running tally, apparently, of her kills. Wow. Now, there is a lot of, like, political intrigue that goes along with this story that we didn't really yeah. get into because, again, that's not what we're here for. But it has more recently been suggested that a lot of the stuff about the Countess, a lot of this cruelty and blood drinking and shit, was not true, was well, yeah. made up to slander yeah. her. Mm-hmm. So you can take the story as you will. But there are historical recounts of all of her trials yeah. and stuff. So it's something that, you know, she was punished for or whatever. So... Lady Dracula actually seems to check quite a few boxes, right? For sure. Yeah. yeah. She has the long nails. Yeah. She drinks blood. For sure. We know for a fact she drinks blood. Maybe she's possessed by a demon, or they mm-hmm. thought she was because she had seizures, which would make her pretty unholy. She was beautiful, and she was charming. She was a woman of the court. She could talk to people, and she yeah. was delightful if you weren't, like, a servant girl she wanted to bite. Sometimes she'd get, like, ravenous, too, and just bite, like, the people. Yeah, and she bit people. That happened. Or, or if you were to believe what people said, she did. Yeah. Uh, she preferred to prey on young girls, which a lot of times Dracula likes young, yeah. good-looking girls. She kept several of them chained up in her castle, like the Brides of Chaos or yeah. whatever he has. Uh, and some say this was sexual for her, which is clearly put onto Dracula. Uh, there's even a story of a baby being taken away and given to people in Transylvania. Right. So you could trace that back, too. The Blood Countess used blood to attempt to restore her youth and beauty. So we have another box checked there. But there are still a few pieces missing. And there are many people who doubt that Bram Stoker even knew about the Blood Countess. But suspending our disbelief, maybe, maybe, right? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So like Vlad of Wallachia, the Blood Countess only had one life, and it was of average length. She used blood as a beauty treatment, but didn't see it as nourishment, per se. Like, she didn't need to eat it like she would eat food. She ate normal food. She liked blood, but she didn't need it. There's no psychic powers associated with her or mind control. She apparently had a shadow and a reflection. She may have bitten some folks, but the blood countess did not have fangs. And I haven't seen a single person turn into a bat. So for the rest of these things, we're going to have to turn to the life of Bram Stoker, a little science, and a lot of folklore. And you covered the bats already, so that's a check. Yep. So let's, let's turn now to the world of medicine. Leslie, are there any medical conditions. I mean, I know there are several, but is there like a main main thing you think that might have contributed to this story? Well, Holly, there is such a thing called clinical vampirism. Well, that could do it. Yep. It's a rare psychiatric disorder in which the patient feels a compulsion to consume blood. Yikes. Yep. In 1992, clinical psychologist Richard Knoll jokingly named the disorder Renfield syndrome, after the character Renfield in the novel Dracula, Renfield is a mental patient who consumes flies in the belief that he will absorb their life force. Eventually, he begins feeding the flies to spiders and spiders to birds and then consuming the birds to obtain a greater concentration of life force. Very smart. 
Yeah. People who suffer from this illness commonly believe that they obtain some sort of power or strength through the consumption of blood. Okay, so that's very similar to a vampire. That There you go. Renfield syndrome is not yet classified in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM. So many psychologists will classify the syndrome as schizophrenia or paraphilia and treat it more as a symptom than its own disorder. All right. On average, Renfield syndrome are predominantly males. The disorder is typically sparked by an event in childhood in which the person associates the sight or taste of blood with excitement. For example, they fall and bite their lip, causing it to bleed, and they taste their own blood and find that they like the taste of it. So that could be the blood countess, too. Like, she was fed blood as a child. Right. So maybe that started it for her. Right. During puberty, the sight, taste, and smell of blood usually results in sexual arousal, too. This then causes a connection between blood and sex, resulting in that, like, bloodlust behavior. Mm, vampires. Right. And this lust can stimulate a sense of power and control whenever the person is in the presence of or consumes blood. So there are typically three stages of Renfield syndrome. First is autovampirism, the act of drinking your own blood. And this stage usually begins in childhood. Second is zoophagia, which literally translates to eating living creatures. But in this case, it's more about the drinking of blood of animals. And and obviously animals instead of people because animals are going to be easier to get. Got and it. that's like the next step. It's like they tasted some of their own blood. Now they're tasting animals' blood. Yeah. And the third stage is full-blown vampirism. Ooh. The act of procuring and drinking blood from living human beings. For the most part, those in this stage engage in consensual blood sucking with a donor Usually their partner, a friend, or family member that is very understanding. Oh, family member. Yeah. You can't Usually have sexy not. time with a family well, member. Well, but it's not necessarily always about sexy time. But they relate it to sexual feelings. Sometimes. Okay. Sometimes they do. Still, yeah. I don't like it. I know. Most of the time, it's not a family member, though. Most yep. of the time, it's just like a partner or That a makes friend. more sense to me. Yeah. Or it's even just a stranger who is willing to be a donor. They're like, yes. Vampire. Yeah. Let's yes. do it. Yeah. I Others, hate all this blood I have. <laughs> I know. For sure. Others acquire human blood from hospitals and laboratories. So they or can get them like in the blood bags. Nope, that's stuff. the worst one. They just have bags of it from a hospital. Like, yeah, just in the fridge. Like a Capri Sun. Yeah. The worst Capri Sun. A forbidden Capri Sun. Yeah, not for them. They love it. I know. And then there are the few who have a darker desire and use violence such as rape, torture, or even killing their victims in order to drink their blood. So we've seen this in Richard Chetton Chase, yeah. the Atlas Vampire, and the Blood Countess, as we just talked sure. about, and so on. But for many and most of the vampire community, the drinking of blood is simply a way for them to feel better. And yes, there is very much a vampire community. So there are thousands of people across the U.S. alone that drink blood and call themselves vampires. They genuinely live in uh, communities together, like the Vampire Clan of New Orleans, which Holly has talked about before. I read all their rules. You sure did. That was in our um, Rod Farrell episode. Yeah. Almost every major city in the U.S. has a clan. Many of them are hidden so as to not attract unwanted attention. Well, I know. Uh, most if not all of these communities adhere to certain rules, one of which is that they can only be a part of the community if they engage in consensual blood drinking. One 
can be made to donate, one cannot be made to donate their own blood or drink others' blood. Got it. They also, they always practice safe donations. Any new donation will get their blood tested so as to make sure they aren't passing any diseases. There are always um, nurses or doctors within the clans to help uh, or teach how to safely draw blood for consumption, especially for those who may not want to drink it directly off the person. Those in this community often explain that their blood thirst started in childhood when they tasted the blood and immediately felt rejuvenated. For many, it's not always about the taste, but how they feel after. It may cure their fatigue, irritable bowel syndrome, sore muscles and joints, headaches, and stomach cramps. They all say um, after ingesting blood, their symptoms immediately disappear and they feel great for a couple of weeks until their symptoms return and they need to drink again. So yeah, I think that honestly, we all could use a dose of blood then and make all of our joints and irritable bowel syndrome go away. That'd be great. I mean, yeah, it sounds great. Sounds really great. So what is the science behind why drinking blood can ease these symptoms in some? Honestly, Holly, I have no idea. I was going to say, there's no science. And neither do researchers. Probably because all they can conclude is that drinking blood runs the risk of only doing harm. A little taste of blood here and there, like say a few teaspoons, won't hurt. As long as it's free from pathogens like bloodborne diseases, But if you drink too much, you develop heart disease, liver failure, and even cancer. And this is because blood is rich in iron and high in in doses, iron is toxic. It leads to a condition called hemochromatosis or iron overload. And if that goes untreated, it can be fatal. And this is true in any animal that that digests too much blood. Mm. So animals have the ability with their, with certain enzymes to help kind of combat some of the drinking of blood, but even for them, if they have too much. They get sick. Yeah. Okay. So it's just just not good. There's no possible way that anybody could drink like a goblet and be cool. Yeah, no, you'd be be in pretty rough shape. Now, most of the people I would say in this vampire community, they do only have like a little bit and they only do it like once or twice a month or something. It's just like, they say that they drink it, their symptoms go away, and then when their symptoms start to come back, they, like, have a little bit more. I'm, like, picturing it, and it's making me gag. <laughs> <laughs> it's not for everybody. It's not for Just me. for vampires. Not for me. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, strangely enough, Renfield syndrome actually isn't the only medical explanation for undead blood-drinking fiends. Not our fiends, just, like, general fiends. Okay. But to get back to the um, other one, we have to go all the way back to the days of the Black Plague. Oh, so strap in. This is a really fun story. Located between Venice and Lido in the Venetian lagoon of northern Italy sits a little island called Povelia. Povelia is incredibly old. It is cited in documents dating back to 421 AD. It is full of history, and yet no one lives there anymore, and no one even visits. During the 9th century, Povelia Island was mainly inhabited by refugees from Padua and Este. When Venice, and thus also Povelia, were under attack by Genoa in 1379, the residents fled to another island. After this, the island was abandoned until 1527, when the plague hit Italy, and Povelia Island became a place to dump the dead and dying. Ships arrived loaded with plague victims and dropped them off on the shores of Povelia, with little to nothing to their names. They were left there, quite simply, to die. 
In the 16th century, the first load of ships loaded with plague victims arrived on the island. Venice, being an island as well, was vulnerable for epidemics, but leaving the sick and dead victims in Venice would have catastrophic effects because it was a fancy city full of people, not an abandoned island. Right. That's why the sick and dead were transported to the abandoned Povelia Island. The dead were thrown into deep pits. So people were coming to monitor this island and like collect the dead. And it would it would have been a bunch of plague doctors. Oof. So this place is inhabited by people who are almost dead in a gruesome way. Totally dead. And people dressed as giant terrifying ravens. So, so wild. It's a, it was it's like a nightmare. It is an actual nightmare. Yeah. So when the plague doctors would come and poke at people and see who was dead, they would throw the dead into deep pits. When the pits filled up because they would get full, they were set on fire or covered with dirt. Now, people claim the Povelia consists of about 50% dirt and 50% human ashes to this day. And it's pretty close. Yeah. A lot of the ground there is is like human matter, which is pretty gross. Yeah. When the mass graves were discovered a century later, the researchers stumbled upon something incredibly unsettling, you know, aside from the giant pit of bodies they discovered. In some graves, they found skulls with large pieces of rock clamped between their jaws. And here's why. Every time a victim died, a death pit was reopened. So somebody's dead, you got to throw them in the pit. You got to open it back up. Sometimes a recently buried corpse would be seen when they opened it up with blood dripping from their mouth. Decomposition gases will bloat a body once it has ceased to live, and sometimes this causes the internal organs to rupture. The blood will be forced them through the mouth. Mm -hmm. But they didn't know that back in the 16th century. It can also do weird things like make them sigh and make them move a little and stuff. Like Modern medicine was still hundreds of years away, and so inexplicable events were given fantastical meanings. They had to make a story for this. Yeah, for sure. So if you were to find a dead body in a different position than you left it in with blood around its mouth, how on earth would you explain that? Well, 16th century Italians assumed these bodies were coming back to life in the dead of night to wander through the pits and drink the blood of the recently deceased. Mm. So, you know, maybe we ought to put giant rocks in their mouths so they don't like get out of the pit and start biting living people. We don't know what they're capable of. Aren't we glad we have science now? So how does this make its way back to Bram Stoker? Well, as much as I'd like to say that this theory of the dead coming back to life to drink blood was debunked pretty quickly, it actually held on tight for quite a large chunk of human history. But back to Bram. Abraham Bram Stoker was born on the 8th of November in 1847 on the north side of Dublin, Ireland. His parents were Abraham Stoker from Dublin, so senior, and Charlotte Matilda Blake Thornley. What a classy name. I love it. And she was raised in County Sligo, which oh. everyone should recognize. Yes. Bram was the third of seven children and was bedridden with an unknown illness until he started school at the age of seven when he made a complete recovery. Um, there are a lot of people who made a lot of speculation as to what Bram Stoker had as a child, and nobody comes up with a good answer. He just had something that made it so he couldn't even walk until he was like seven. Could have been polio. It could have been um, somebody thinks it's, what was the one theory I read that it's like a form of spina bifida? Mm. There are a lot of theories, but nobody knows is okay. what it boils down to. Maybe they fed him blood. Maybe they did. Well, he did have stuff with blood, and I'm going to get there in a second. Um, of this time, Bram Stoker writes that he was, quote, I was naturally thoughtful 
and the leisure of long illness gave opportunity for many thoughts which were fruitful according to their kind in later years. So, like, he did a lot of daydreaming. Mm. <laughs> While he may have been... So wordsy. <laughs> I know. While he may have been thoughtful, he was also subjected to the medicine of the time, which, more often than not, included copious sessions of bloodletting. So he wouldn't have been drinking blood, yeah. but he would have been having blood drained from his body. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bleeding was a cure-all back then. It was touted as a cure for cancer, cholera, diabetes, epilepsy, indigestion, insanity, leprosy, plague, smallpox, and tuberculosis, just to name a few. Right, and vampirism. Yes. <laughs> Irritable bowel syndrome. It just <laughs> does drain your blood out. Yeah. <laughs> because he was bedbound most of the time, little Bram spent the majority of his time observing the world around him and listening to his mother Charlotte's stories. Charlotte told him Irish legends and experiences from her own recent history, which brings us to the Sligo cholera epidemic of 1832. And if you haven't realized why you know Sligo yet, it is the namesake of whiskey pioneer and horrifying alleged cannibal puppet master, James Sligo Jameson. Mm -hmm. You guys all should remember that episode. Now, We've already established that you pay attention, obviously, so you know that Bram Stoker wasn't even alive in 1832, but his mother, Charlotte Blake Thornley, was. Charlotte and her family lived in Sligo on Old Market Street, and the epidemic whipped through their community like a tornado. Cholera is a bacterial disease causing severe diarrhea and dehydration, and it's usually spread through water, contaminated water. Sligo was and is a port city located on low gravel hills on the bank of the... Garavogue River. I didn't get the pronunciation of that, and I bet you it's different because Irish is always different, but I apologize. And that's how everyone got cholera in the late 1830s, contaminated river water. And because, you know, we're also at a time where people probably, like, disposed of their waste in the river. Yeah. So there you have it. Um, And they also would use pumps to get this river water for drinking water, which is so gross, but, you know, everybody winds up with cholera. But fortunately... The Thornleys lived on higher ground, which means they had an uncontaminated well. And so they never got sick and managed to flee the city after a few weeks of horror, only to return when the outbreak had passed. And when they came back, Charlotte found the streets, quote, grass-grown and five-eighths of the town dead. So the people had been out of it so long that grass grew in the streets. Wow. Basically. Charlotte was so affected by surviving this experience that she talked about it often. And she even went so far as to write a book about it in the 1870s. And the imagery is grim. Charlotte speaks of death coming swiftly, sometimes three or four in a household at a time. Corpses were loaded up onto carts every single morning, like, you know, bring out your dead. Mm -hmm. That's a real thing. That's what they were doing. And fires were constantly smoldering in the streets because they thought the smoke would cleanse the air of, like, miasma, or just how they thought people spread illnesses back then. Often, little children of working-class families were the first to go. And though the coffin sellers came by every day, so every day they would be like door-to-door coffin salesmen trying to sell you a coffin, the deaths were simply too much to afford for most families. And so their bodies left the house in simple sacks. Mm -hmm. You know, like the sack you might put them into and then feed them to a vampire. Right. Hospitals were also overrun. And um, in addition to children of working-class families, doctors and nurses were some of the first to die because there was no sanitation stuff back then. So they were all just, touching things and getting sick right away. So people that were running the hospitals were not exactly experienced medical pros, and the bodies just piled up on the ground. Eventually, mass graves were dug, much like those in Povalia. And graves is a generous term used by a slightly more civilized society. They were still little more than a large stinking pit filled with bodies. 
Because very little was known about contagion, bodies were thrown into pits as soon as they showed signs of death. So like, you're about to die, we got to get rid of you. You can't be breathing on people or whatever. And in some cases, they were thrown in merely at the sign of their soon impending death. And by that, I mean that sometimes people were thrown in when they looked close to death and were full of opiates, which is terrifying. Right. You're just awake in a pit full of dead bodies waiting to die. That is a nightmare. That's horrible. Yep. I'm not dead yet. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So the nearly dead were also thrown in to to prevent them spreading disease anymore. And in still other cases, some people were tossed in prematurely when they were just presumed dead but weren't. And some of these folks somehow managed to recover. In one case, a man was being fitted for a coffin that would require his legs to be removed. And in the middle of the preparation, he suddenly woke up. So this guy had money, obviously. So they were like, let's saw his legs off. And he was like, no, 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 no. And like woke up. Yeah, wow. In another case, a woman was thrown into one of the pits and her grief-stricken husband climbed in and pulled her out so that he could give her a proper burial at home. Because again, this was like devastating to not be able to give your family member a proper burial. But when he got her home, she opened her eyes and started talking to him. So wild. It's like, this is the body of my wife I'm going to bury. And then she's like, what happened? I was just napping. I was asleep. Yeah. Rude. She that would, would be me. <laughs> I would, I would fall Sound asleep sleeper. hard. Ja would be like, well, I guess it's time to bury her. I guess we got to pull her out of the pit and bury <laughs> <Yeah>. her. <laughs> God. But no, he, had... or he'd be like, are you guys sure she's not just like... <laughs> <laughs> He would have made sure. Yeah. This woman went to went on to live for like a good long time after that. Yeah. She's yeah. like, I'm better. I believe it. She just needed a nap. My cholera is done. Yeah. Ugh. So it was not uncommon at that point in time to see a pale and sickly living human crawling out of a pit of dead bodies, probably smeared with blood. Yeah. That sure does seem like the dead coming back to life. Yeah. Doesn't it? In addition to this gnarly bit of history, Charlotte told her young son a lot of traditional Irish folklore, which would include the story of Avertach. In the 5th century, in the town of Slotiferty, lived an evil and powerful ruler, a dwarf named Avertach. Yes. The language of the day is dwarf. I know it is little person. I am sorry to anyone this might offend, but I am only using the language that was used back then. Avertach possessed magical powers and wielded them against his own people. And he also looks like a fucking demon. He is super hot. (laughs) He's like a scary little golem. Yeah. (laughs) I'll put pictures in the (laughs) Real sexy golem. Yeah, he's sexy (laughs) golem. (laughs) Now, some people say he got his powers by slaying a druid who had befriended him in his youth. And when he was a kid, he was bullied for his size. So he befriends this mystical person and they give him magical powers. They're like, okay, I'm going to help you defend yourself, little guy. Either way, no one wanted to cross Avertok. If he heard that one of the people of his village had spoken ill of him, he would curse their fields to yield no crops or for all their, like, have all their cows dry up. I love it. Yeah. The village of Slotaverti lived in fear of Avertok. Avertok was also a jealous man and suspected his wife to be unfaithful. So one night, Avertok decided he would climb out of his bedroom window and sneak into his wife's chambers to catch her in the act. Plot twist, there was no act to catch her in. Oh, no. Yeah, so that night, he ventured out the window, but he slipped and fell to his death. The town breathed a sigh of relief to be free of the tyrannical, diminutive ruler, and they buried him standing up, as this was a way 
for someone of his standing. Like, I guess, though, he was higher ranking village person. So they're like, give him some dignity. Bury him standing (laughs) up. Okay. The next day, though, Avertok rose from his grave, clawing his way to the surface, which was not that hard because he was standing up. He had been much changed by his ordeal, however, so now he looks like Sexy Gollum, totally. He's, like, gray and, like, you know, beat up looking, and it's, all of it's gross. So sexy. Yeah, rotting away. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Then he goes and knocks on the door of every household in the village and demands they fill a small bowl he's carrying with him with blood so that he can drink it. Okay. That's how he continues to live. So here's a guy who's drinking blood to survive. This is pretty freaking scary. Yeah. So the terrified villagers acquiesce immediately because what else are they supposed to do? Say no? Right. That guy's scary. Absolutely not. What might he do? While this horrible version of trick-or-treat was going on, a few of the villagers ran to the chieftain of a neighboring village, a man named Cathane, and begged him to rid them of their evil undead dwarf ruler, Avertok. Hearing of their terrible struggles and being a heroic man by nature, Cathane returned to their village and slew the angry undead Avertok, who was once again buried standing up. But the next morning, there was Avertok again, hideous, rotting, and covered in gore, demanding his bowl be filled with blood. Cathane slew Avertok for a second time, and then the next day, he was back again. Dude's just hungry. Yeah. So Cathane then went to a druid, asking how one might kill someone who was already dead. The druid told Cathane that you cannot kill what is already dead. You can only hope to subdue them. And to do this, he must run Avertok through with a sword made from the wood of a yew tree, then bury him upside down. See, that's where they went wrong. They buried him right side up. And place large, heavy stones on top of his grave, surrounded by thorny branches. Cathane returned to the village, sharpened the branch of a yew tree, and killed Avertok one last time, doing exactly as the druid instructed afterward. There, Avertok remains to this day. You can still visit his grave, which is marked with the two large stones and a hawthorn tree that grew from the branches placed around it. I do encourage you to visit at your own risk, though. Remember, the dead cannot die twice. They can only be contained, and Avertok is still thirsty for blood and not afraid to try and get some. In the mid-90s, a construction crew was set to clear the land where Avertok was buried and make way for a new construction. While trying to cut down the hawthorn tree, the chainsaw malfunctioned three times, the last of which left a worker with a horrible, nasty gash on his hand, which poured blood that soaked the ground. And many people think this was the doing of Avertok, who wanted to drink the blood of the living once more. Seeing this as an ominous warning, and as well they should, the town has left the grave of Avertok alone since then. But he's still there. Or... He crawled through to the other side of the earth. Maybe. Maybe. He tunneled. Tunneled. Shawshank style. Yeah. All the way through the earth. And somehow that didn't cause a single earthquake. No. He's a little guy. He's just a little guy. (laughs) That's right. Perfect. (laughs) Folklorically, Bram Stoker being an Irishman was likely influenced mostly by Irish folklore. But that's not to say that vampires don't exist in other cultures. Uh, They have plenty of them, actually. Especially those in Eastern Europe. The very first alleged vampire in history was a man named Yuri Grandol Alilovic, and he was referred to as a striga, or striogi. This is an ancient Romanian troubled spirit that is said to have risen from the grave, and they have all the same things. They transform into an animal, they can become invisible, they gain vitality from the blood of their victims, and they're not great to look at. 
Fioji look more like Nosferatu vampires. Like if Nosferatu and a gargoyle had an angry, angry baby. Yeah. That's what they look like. Good old Count Orlock. But if you heard all of those terrifying tales we just told and still want an even more concrete scientific explanation of the origin of the vampire, I can fit it all into one rare disease. According to the Queen's University Gazette, quote, like many myths, it is based partially in fact. A blood disorder called porphyria, which has been with us for millennia, became prevalent among the nobility and royalty of Eastern Europe. Porphyria is an an inherited blood disorder that causes the body to produce less heme, a critical component of hemoglobin, the protein in red blood cells that carries oxygen from the lungs to the body tissue. It seems likely that this disorder is the origin of the vampire, vampire myth. In fact, porphyria is sometimes referred to as the vampire disease. And remember how um, bloodlines were to remain pure, right? That would pass this down to a very specific line of people. Now let's consider the symptoms of porphyria. Sensitivity to sunlight. They are extremely sensitive to the sun. And this leads sometimes like the sun hitting their face, it will like burn and blister them. And it can cause facial disfigurement, blackened skin, and like hair not growing in some places. So they can be bald and their face, they look noseless and their skin, they look like burn victims. Their skin is very smooth and scarred. So that's the like Nosferatu face. It's Mm -hmm. very similar. I hate to say that, but it is. And they would also be very pale because they can't go in the sun. Fangs. In addition to facial disfigurement, repeated attacks of the disease can cause their gums to recede which will expose more of your teeth, which would then make your canines look like a fang. So if your gums are receding in that area over your canine teeth, you're going to look like you have big old fangs, even if you don't. Yeah. Blood drinking. Because the urine of people with porphyria is dark red, this is because of kidney problems, folklore surmised that they were drinking blood because if you drink blood, you're going to pee blood. Yeah. So I get it. In fact, some physicians had recommended that these patients actually drink blood to compensate for the deficit in their red blood cells. They're like, oh, you're peeing it out too, so you got to drink some more. But this recommendation was for animal blood, and it is more likely that these patients who only went out after dark, because remember, they're very photosensitive and night is for the wicked, they were judged to be looking for blood. Right, right. And their fangs led them to people to believe that they were vampires. Aversion to garlic. The sulfur content of garlic can lead to an attack of porphyria, which makes the sufferer in extremely acute pain. So if you have this disease, you're going to stay as far away from garlic as humanly possible. Garlic also has antibiotic properties. So while people in old timey times didn't know this, they didn't know what antibiotics were, they did know that when they were sick with a cold or a sinus infection type illness, garlic could make them feel better. And vampirism was thought to be an illness, so it would stand to reason that garlic would threaten to cure it, which is not what the vampires wanted. And so they didn't like it. Exactly. And that's why I'm sitting here with so much garlic around me. Holly is like at her wit's end. It's so garlicky in here. It is. It's crazy. Or maybe these vampires just love bland things. Yeah. Because a lot of them are very white. Mm -hmm. So hopefully it'll cure my sinuses. Yeah. Let's cross their fingers. But back to porphyria. Reflections not being seen in mirror. That's one thing we didn't cover yet. In the mythology, a vampire is not able to look in a mirror or cannot see their reflection. They also are said to not have a shadow. Now, the facial disfigurement caused by porphyria does become worse with time. Poor oxygenation leads to the destruction of facial tissue. So even without the sun, their face just deteriorates uh, and their facial structures can collapse. That's what, like I said, they don't have noses a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So patients would avoid or cover their mirrors. 
So people thought they didn't have a reflection because they never really saw it. Right. Um, and likewise, their shadow, you would never see their shadow because they were only out in the dark. Okay. And their houses were kept probably pretty dark. So fear of a crucifix. During the Spanish Inquisition, which was 1478 to 1834, 600 quote-unquote vampires were reportedly burned at the stake. They would have been heretics, I suppose. Some of these accused vampires were innocent sufferers of porphyria, though. And porphyria patients, therefore, had good reason to fear the Christian faith and Christian symbols. Acute attacks of the disease were associated with considerable pain and physical and mental disturbance. So, like, the Christians were coming for them mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. They thought they were vampires. They thought they were possessed. So you'd probably be pretty afraid of a cross if Christians were like routinely coming to get you. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and I think that covers just about all of it, or at least what we promised and have time for. Yeah. <laughs> vampires have continued to capture the imaginations of countless creatives over time and still do to this day. But I'm not sure we would have gotten even a fraction of the vampire fiction we all know and love today without Count Dracula. Mm. So, toast. Well, yeah. Also, I do you think that Bram Stoker was even inspired by those like first two stories? Or do you think that he was I think it was all mythology, to be honest with you. Yeah. I think he used Vlad the Impaler's image. Okay. So he kind of looked like that. Mm -hmm. And he was like, Oh, this is a good way to shape a character yeah. who would then be a vampire. It's interesting for him to be like yeah. nobility. It's interesting for him to have a castle and mm -hmm. to be like, you know, certain things. Right. But I don't think as a person any of Vlad the Impaler really inspired Dracula. I know. Cause I I just because vampirism had been around already. Yeah. And then he had his mom's stories. Yep. And so like you said, I think it's more just the image. And if it was going to be any, per, any like, one person, I think it was the most Avertach. That's what I mean. That's yeah. an Irish myth that he would yeah. have heard. But again, like, the, the image, mm -hmm. sure, we can say that that's Vlad the yeah. And the name comes from him. Yeah. That's why he's Dracula, because Vlad was yeah. Dragulia. Right. So. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, toast. Toast. Good old Bram. To Bram Stoker. <laughs> Thank you for giving us Count Dracula. Yeah. And um, and to Lucy and all of her men and uh, Mina. <laughs> Thank you, Dracula ladies. <laughs> Cheers. And to anybody who just had like a horrifying illness and ended up burned at the stake. That's, I know. Sorry for you guys. That's awful. Yes. And if we climbed out from our graves every night to terrorize the living, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more.